back with Unleashed. I'm your host, Brent Henderson. And uh, remember, we are the resistance. It's good to have you guys back. Um, we're going to go on some crazy adventures again today. You know, we've been doing this every week. That's what we do. You know, we go from some crazy thing around the world, some adventure that hopefully holds you on the edge of your seat, and then we bring it back to the home front and we unpack it because the goal of this whole podcast is not only to get you fired up, but to encourage you, inspire you to go make a difference. Your strength is needed, and uh, that's why we're here. So, Eric, we got a question already this week. Yes, we do. This question is uh, from Scott from Indianapolis. Scott wants to know, what do you do when everything seems impossible? <laughs> you know, when everything seems impossible, I think it's a good place to be. God doesn't like to work through the improbable. God likes to work through the impossible because then he gets all the glory. You know, if it's improbable, there's a chance I could do it, right? There's a chance I could fix this. Sure. And I think that's a lie that I, I know I can buy into. When I have to control my world, um, he's not in it. So, yeah, you know, challenges are gifts sometimes. We can look at that. We'll be talking about that, you know, in another week here. But when things seem impossible, it causes me to rely on him more, not less. And that's a good thing. So renew your mind. You know, I mean, today we're going to talk about that. You know, what do we do when we have, you know, it seems impossible. That's an unhealthy thought, right? Because it's something we all face. And last week we talked about, you know, when we have these thoughts, you know, how do we know that they're an unhealthy thought? They're coming from the enemy. Well, when they line up with the deeds of the flesh, if the emotion that comes out of that thought lines up with the deeds of the flesh, you know, lust, jealousy, anger, rage, whatever, we know that that thought is being planted by the enemy. But when it creates an emotion that lines up with the fruit of the Spirit, then we know it's coming from God. Yeah, it's a big question. I don't think there's probably ever a day then then most of us don't somehow feel that question. I just, I was out mowing my grass and I got done mowing it. And I had just put together, like, fixed my mower. You know, I'm not Mr. Fix-It, right? And I spent the time, of course, I get on YouTube and learn how to do these things like a lot of us do. You sure. know, my dad was a great guy, but he never really taught me how to do much of that kind of stuff. And so I find myself getting on and, and you know, just kind of learning how to do these things. But I got on my, I got done mowing and I realized I had missed a spot. Like, ah, nuts, I got to go back. I went back out and got the key and turned it over. Nothing. Not starting. Well, oh, come on. I just put a couple hundred bucks in this. Mm-hmm. Are you serious? And so it was one of those things. Like, okay, well, where's the money going to come from? You know, everything you can think of. And I just literally, literally felt God say, walk away from it. Come back out and try it later. Guess what? I went back out maybe two or three hours later, started right up. Chances are I probably somehow had flooded it. Who knows? Right. These things happen. They do. And, and I'm not minimizing, you know, big things happen, you know, things like cancer, loss of a loved one, you know, just pain, painful stuff. So, yeah, that's, that's a big question. And the only thing I know is this. My mom used to always say to me, this too shall pass, honey, this too shall pass. When things seem impossible, God has a plan, and he does. Well, let me see. You know, there's a, a question that I was going to bring up. You know, we get talking in here as we're recording these podcasts about some of these, these crazy adventures. And I had a guy ask me, he said, um, you know, in all these adventures that you do around the world, he says, what's the most scared you've ever been? And which is a big question. I mean, I've been, believe it or not, because I, I work a lot within the outdoor and the hunting industry, I've been charged by a 400-pound Russian boar, a bison, a red stag, two black bears, you'll hear some of these stories coming up, and uh, a brown bear. And that one scared me the most. I mean, a brown bear, when you think about these things can get, you know, 13 to 1,500 pounds, a full-size brown bear, you know, have five-inch claws. 
I mean, they're just massive. Wow. And uh, this is really wild. So we had been filming uh, some episodes for some things we were doing for some men's ministry. Uh, this has probably been 10 years ago now. And we were on the Russian River in Alaska down on the Kenai Peninsula. And as we were fishing, we had another guy who was with us. And, and we said, hey, listen, we're going to be filming. Don't get lost. He didn't know his, his way around here very well. Said, uh, you know, don't, don't get lost. Keep your eye on us. Because when we're ready to come back out of here, we had to go down this really steep hillside to get down to the Russian River because it was the time of the year. It was like uh, late August, early September. And you've got the salmon runs. You know, they're all swimming back up to give their life for the next generation. And you've got just thousands and thousands of salmon. And so you got lots of salmon, you got lots of bears. That's what they do. That's how they fatten up for the winter. So we said, don't get lost. You know, we don't want to get separated after dark because, you know, in the daytime, you know, the bears can see you, you see them. Everything is usually a pretty good marriage as long as you don't get too close, right? Let them have their space. Let them do what they, they want to do with these fish. Well, we got done and it was time to go and we couldn't find them. And it's, it's starting to get dark. We're like, oh, he must have gone back up to the truck already. So we loaded up all of our stuff. Went back up to the top, get to the pickup truck, and he's not there. We're like, oh, this is not, maybe he went to the bathroom with this, but we walked down the road a little ways and he wasn't there. And so this guy happened to be my buddy's brother-in-law. And he says, listen, this is, this is a, a, a tough situation. I, I got to go back down there. And the thing was, it, at daytime, like I said, it, everything's usually pretty good. But the problem is at night, um, you get rogue bears coming out. And see, most bears, if they can see you, smell you, or hear you, they're gone. They don't want anything to do with you. Or if you're filming and keeping your distance, they get used to seeing tourists taking pictures and things. But it's those rogue bears, the problem bears, the ones that get tagged and, or shot or whatever um, that'll come out at night. And so he goes down. He says, stay here at the truck in case he comes back. We had no cell phone coverage, didn't have radios on us. Um, yeah, bad situation. So he goes down over the hillside, and I, about 30 minutes. And I'm there, and I'm like, oh, this is not, because all he had was a 9 mil, right? I go, this is not, this is not good. Same guy that shot the, uh, the halibut over the side of the Zodiac with a 9 mil, my buddy, wow. Wade. He's got the same pistol. <laughs> you know, and it's not, usually you're not, you're not walking around with a 9 mil. I mean, if you've got a brown bear come up, you better have it in his mouth when you pull the trigger, because that's not going to do much of anything. It's just going to make him matter. Right. So I'm realizing, oh, man, this isn't good. So I get, I've got a, a 44 uh, Raging Bull, 44 Magnum, which, again, it's big, but you really want something really big, you know, 460, 500, whatever. And I'm going, i got to go down there. So I'm getting my headlamp, I'm getting my flashlight, and I'm making my way down the hill, and I get to the side of this river, and I can't find him. I'm like, I don't know which way he went. Did he go to the right or did he go to the left on the river? So I go to the left, and I get maybe 75 yards, and my light hits something reflect off the trail, and I look down, and there's the contents of a tackle box spilled everywhere, and it wasn't picked up. Who would leave, you know, $100 worth of or more of lures, right? Okay, this is not good. He got hammered. I'm thinking his brother-in-law got hammered, and now we're going to have a search and recovery going on. So, I, I mean, I could feel the hairs in the back of my neck stand up because you know if he got hammered, there's going to be a bear pile somewhere close, and he's just he's close. He's not going to go too far away. So I'm, I'm now talking, hey, bear, hey, bear, you know, I'm all this stuff, letting him know where I'm at. Hopefully he'll leave me alone. Maybe he's going to be freaked out. I get all the way back to the truck, and the two of them are standing there. I said, what in the world? They said, oh, he got lost and came up a different way. But that was the most I was ever afraid because I know those bears coming out at night there are, are, are problem bears. And when you're down there by yourself and you've got these, you know, 1,000-pounders, you know, fishing down there, it is spooky. So... That's kind of leading into our episode now. You know, this episode is is called Adventure Begins 
when plans go bad. And that's a saying that my buddy and I have had, you know, in all the years of all of our adventures, we've always said, you know, adventure begins when plans go bad. You know, when things go south, um, the unpredictable, because that, that's when things start to get interesting. You know, some of you are going, you're certifiable, and you're probably right. But it is. It's, it's, it's when stories get made, right? So adventure begins when plans go bad. This week, we're going we're gonna to keep it in Alaska. You know, we were in Alaska this last time we talked about the calving glacier, you know, calving meaning that glacier's coming apart, you know, big pieces like that are falling off the front of it. We're going to keep it. We're going to move a little bit more inland, and we're going to be on the Kenai Peninsula. And it starts off with a place called Cooper's Landing. You know, when you, when you leave Anchorage, you know, you're several hours south on the Kenai along the river there. And we had been fishing. You know, we had limited out, and we get back. We flay them out, and we get in our cots. We're right off the side of the road, really, basically sleeping in our sleeping bag on these cots. And about midnight, we hear this ambulance go blowing by. And I'm like, what's that doing out, you know, this far in the middle of the night? And he says, well, he says, maybe there was a car wreck or maybe someone got hammered by a bear. You know, we kind of like half laugh about it. Um, but we know it's a real possibility, you know, where we're at. So the next morning we get up, we take a few uh, drinks, coffee, walk down this, this maybe 100 yards to this little bait shop was real close to where we were. And I said, did you hear that ambulance? He says, you don't know what happened? I said, no. He points across the river to this little gift shop up on this hillside. He said, yeah, there was some young girl. It's her first time to Alaska. She was going to be working at this gift shop up on that hill. And about 10 o'clock last night, she went outside, you know, still lights, Alaska. She went outside to smell the flowers and walked around the back of this, this little gift shop. And there was a, a brown bear boar. You know, she spooked it and hammered her, grabbed her by the head, and she's screaming, and there was a father and daughter, and they come out, and they're screaming at the bear and throwing stuff. And before the, the bear could, what's called ragdoll, before it could ragdoll her, you know, and kill her, um, it takes off, and she's, she's a mess, right? So the ambulance came in. That's what we heard. And they, they get her, and they take her to a helicopter, and they life flight her back to Anchorage because they have to do emergency surgery. Well, we are sitting there hearing the story, and Wade goes, hey, I got an idea. I'm like, oh, here we go again. What's it this time? He says, let's go up there to the location where it happened. Let's tell the story. Let's film all this stuff. So we get up, and I'm talking to the woman inside this little gift shop, and she had just gotten a phone call. We'll call this woman who was hammered by the bear. We'll call her Debbie, okay, just for namesake. said, yeah, we just got a, a call from the hospital about Debbie. And I said, what happened? They said, well, you know, that bear really did a lot of damage. You know, it, hundreds of stitches had to be put under scalp and staples and all this. And she goes, but the funniest thing is I talked to the attending surgeon and she said that when Debbie woke up from surgery at three o'clock in the morning, the first thing she said was call my mom back in Denver and tell her I finally saw a bear. <laughs> what? I mean, how, how do you make something light out of a situation, you know, like that? You know, what an amazing sense of humor. But that is one of those things, you know, it's adventure begins, you know, when, when plans go bad. So we get, okay, I'm just going to stretch this out a little bit. So we get in the truck, we film this Larry tell a story, and they don't know where this bear went. So we go about a quarter of a mile down the river. We're going to fish, and we get across this little bridge on a bend, and I see this big brown bear coming underneath the bridge. And it's going to pass right underneath. And I said, wait. I said, go across the bridge. I'm going to grab my camera. I'm going to run to the other side and film this brown bear. So he parks. I grab my camera. I go taking off running. And I get to the other side. And I walk around the edge, you know, looking down underneath this, this bridge. 
And the bear is coming out from underneath the bridge, you know, looking kind of both ways. And as I open the, the shutter on my, my camera, it hears that it makes this clicking sound. Whatever happened, it set that bear off. He lays his ears flat to his head. Here he comes up the hill right at me. I go taken out to the road. I go running as fast as I can. There was a guy in a camper. He sees it, and he's waving. I jump up, and I grab the back of the ladder on this truck. He takes off across the bridge and gets me to the other side where my buddy was. But we're like, what happened with this bear that it just set it off like that? Because brown bears might tolerate you at, 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 you know, at 50 yards. But something might happen at 100 yards, and they can, I mean, they can, they can cover ground in a 40-yard dash faster than a quarter horse can. You just never know. So we called um, the DNR up there, and we told them, you know, this bear, what had just happened to me. And he says, we have a feeling it's probably the same bear that, that hammered uh, Debbie, as we called her. And so they had to come out, and they said, we've had a problem with this bear. And they went ahead and, and disposed of the bear. But, you know, it's, adventure begins when plans go bad. And my, my friend who traveled with me around, around the world everywhere, he lived for, on Kodiak Island in a tent in the summertime for like 17 summers. He was up there filming these giant bears. You know, you've got like the Dog Salmon River, these other rivers up there, they're choke full of big salmon. Well, big salmon, big bears. So he calls me up on the phone and he says, hey, he says, um, I'm going to be going uh, back up to this area again and I'm going to be filming Yukon moose. You know, Yukon moose, they're seven feet tall at the shoulder, 15, 1600 pounds. I mean, they're huge. And his footage was known. Some of his best footage was uh, some moose fights, some incre- incredible stuff. So he says, stay tuned. I'm going to be going up and filming, and I'll, I'll get a hold of you when, when the, uh, the trip is over with. So we start really now with where we're headed. And so I'm in Muncie, Indiana at a mall shopping. And my phone rings, and the first words that I hear are, Brent, are you sitting down? And I'm like, this is going to be good. If he's saying that, and he's, he's had more adventures than any 100 men combined. This is going to be good. I said, what's up? He says, well, he says, you know, we, we flew in uh, to Wide Bay. And they were flying up, you know, again, looking for, for moose. And they're flying in a Super Cub. Now, if you've ever seen a Super Cub, you know, it's a, it's a two-seater plane. You've got the pilot flying with a stick, and you're sitting behind him. You've got one door that opens up, kind of like, what was that car from Back to the Future, that DeLorean or whatever, right? He said, so I've got my backpack in my lap because you, you don't have much space in these things. So we're flying through these mountain passes, and we get to where we're going to be. Um, there's no runway. It's just a little bit of a grassy area, and there's a, a little shack. It's 8 foot by 10 foot. You know, it's made of like a three-quarter inch plywood with a tin roof on top. It's built like back in the 1950s. I mean, it's, it's been there for a long time. It's got a lot of patchwork done to it, but that's where they're going to be staying while they're going to be filming for the next like five days or so. He said, so when we, when we land the plane, we taxi up to this uh, little shack and the pilot, you know, hits the rudder, spins the plane around. And as soon as the prop stops, he says, I look out the window and there's some guy standing like pressed up against the window of this plane and he wants out of there. And he's like, what is up with this guy? He opens up the door of the plane. He says, I get my, my, uh, 4570 rifle out and I get my backpack. And by the time I'm turned around, this guy is already in the plane, in the seat with his backpack and his 338 mag. He wants out of there. He wants no, no part of this anymore. He says, I knew something big had happened. He says, so I walk over to the guide and he says, man, he goes, what's up with this guy? And he says, come here, I'll show you. So they walk around the side of this cabin 
and there is an entire panel, you know, like, you know, like three foot by six foot gone, just splintered, ripped off. Everything is gone. There's, there looks like snow on the ground outside of it, but there's no snow. It's pieces of pillow and sleeping bag. He says, Brownberry says, yeah. He said, what happened? He said, well, my client had shot a moose and we packed everything back. And when we go back to get the second load, you know, we got these trash bags full of moose meat and we're, we're bringing back. He says, we glass the cabin because we see a disturbance as we're kind of getting close. And we see this bear pulling everything out of the back. It looks like snow flying through the air. He says, so yeah, my, my client wants out of here. He says, yeah, I can see why. Plane takes off and here it is, Wade and the guide. And they're, they're going to be there for the next few days, you know, filming, filming moose. He says, well, we got a problem. We got to figure out what we're going to do with this, this hole. You know, we're sleeping in the cabin. What are we going to do with this, this hole in this wall? He says, well, he says, I found a tarp. He goes, a tarp? He says, it's all I got. He says, I, I pulled some roofing nails out, you know, of this, this cabin, and we'll just thumbtack that kind of up over the, the hole, you know, and a little bit of nervous laughter, like, yeah, this is going to work great. He goes, well, we've got one more problem. He says, before we can go in the cabin, you know, for the evening, he says, I've got some of the moose meat in the alder bushes behind the cabin we got to bring in with us tonight. He goes, have you thought this through? You know, the bear already knows our address. He says, as a guide, I have to keep that meat with me, right? So they bring the moose meat in. He says, Brent, you, you remember, this is an 8-foot by 10-foot shack. You have a table built up against one wall. You have one cot on the side and one cot on the end. There's hardly any room in the middle. He says, there is so much moose meat that we bring in that when I lay on my bunk, he says, I can lay my arm on top of the bags of moose meat. He said, this is a bad idea. So they're kind of going, what are we going to do with this whole thing? And he says, why don't we do this? If the bear comes back, he's going to come right through where the hole was, right? He knows how to get in here. So he says, let's just do this. Let's lay our rifle and our flashlight up on top of a bag of moose meat in front of us, and we'll just practice pointing it at the tarp, you know, because he's going to come through there. It's going to be one of those, you know, like, here's Johnny, right? I'm going to come through the tarp, and we're going to shine the flashlight and shoot him in the face. So that's their plan. So they repeatedly keep shining this flashlight, you know, going rifles, until they finally get used to, you know, doing it as, a, as, a, as a, just a quick reflex action. And so the guide finally looks over at Wade and he goes, hey, he said, uh, before you turn out the lantern, he goes, why don't you go over and lock the door? <laughs> he says, seriously? He says, I walk over and he says, the lock is two eight penny nails and a shoestring. That's it. So we kind of laugh about it. And he says, we go to bed. It's about midnight. He said, I'm, I'm asleep. Now, this is, I think, what was it? it had been early October or whatever. He says, I hear the belly hair of this bear on the outside of the cabin. And he said, I instantly realized this is not right. This is not a good idea. And he whispers to the guide. He goes, please tell me that's you. And the guide says, I was going to ask you the same question. Well, now they know the bear is here. They can hear him popping his teeth. He's circling the cabin. He said, so we're, we're screaming like little girls. He says, for about two minutes until we both lost our voice. And we're just at the top of our lungs screaming, right? So he said the bear would leave. 20 minutes later, he'd come back. He'd stand up. He'd score the tin roof with his, you know, those five-inch, you know, claws. He's doing all this stuff. Really spooky situation. And he said, so finally, when the bear comes back the next time and gets up against the side of this thing, the, the guy takes his hand as hard as he can and slams it, you know, numerous times off the, the wall. And the, the bear leaves and, and wanders off. He said, so... I laid down on my bunk and I started thinking, you know, what did Brent and I talk about in how to renew my mind? See, Wade, you know, discipled me. He was a mentor for me in the outback, you know, how to survive, you know, how to be uh, really good in those environments, you know, should things go south. 
he was he was mentored by an Athabascan Indian, so he was he was very well trained. And so he taught me in a lot of these things. And what I did with him was really teach him how to renew his mind, you know, the biblical side of things, you know, and because we both love God and that's what I, I would do with him. So he had called me before he ever left and he said, if things would happen to go south, do you have a few verses that I could renew my mind with? And he said, Brent, I laid there and I says, the only thing I could think of when I'm thinking about this bear possibly chewing my ears off, he said, all I could think of was to live as Christ, but to die as gain. And he said, and the only thought that I'd come up with was, if I die tonight, the first face I'm going to see is going to be Jesus. He said, and believe it or not, that was enough. He said, I slept like a baby the rest of the night. He said, I really was kind of amazed that I slept through the night. He said, I found peace. Well, the next morning they get up, they open the door of the, of the cabin. They look out about 40 yards away, and here's this massive 10-foot, 6-inch, you know, brown bear, 12, 1,300-pound brown bear. You know, it's one of these record book Boone and Crockett bears. And it's sitting there like a big dog, and it wanders off. And he says, hey, it's daytime. You know, we both have our rifles. We're good. So he says, we're out filming moose for about a half a day or so, and we hear the super cub flying back in. Now, remember, the super cub isn't supposed to be coming back for several days at least to pick them up, to give them time to film, and no one else is supposed to be coming to this cabin. He said, so we knew something was up, so we hightailed it back to the cabin. He says, when the plane landed and taxied up to that cabin, he goes, I was the guy pressed up against the window of this plane wanting out of here. He said, what are you doing back here? What's, what's up? He said, oh, he goes, we got a big storm coming in. And he said, you know, up here, you know, it, I mean, it, it's, it, it'll drape over your windshield like a, like a white woolen blanket when those storms come in and you can't see anything. That's, that's how, frankly, a lot of pilots get killed up there, bush pilots, because you're flying VFR, visual flight restrictions, and you, you can't see them, you know, the mountains. You know, all the, all the bush pilots up there will tell you this, you know, all the clouds have rocks in them. So you really have to be able to see where you're flying. He said, so I've got a, he says, I have a client coming in to a brown bear hunt in just a few days, you know, after you guys are done here. He said, so I, I really need to get you guys out of here now because, you know, if we have any problems, I have to get that guy in here. So they pack up and they, and they take off. Well, the next week, the pilot comes back with this bow hunter from Pennsylvania. Now, here's the deal. This bow hunter from Pennsylvania has never even seen a black bear. You know, you're talking, you know, three, 400-pound black bear, big one going up against a 12 or 1300 pound brown bear. And he's never even seen a black bear. And that's what he's going to be facing. So they, they fly in, you know, they, they land the plane. And when they get to the cabin, it's like a bomb went off. The cabin's totally destroyed. The bear come back, flatten the whole thing out. They can't stay in it. So they have to go back and get two outfitter tents. Now outfitter tents, you know, like these big canvas tents, they've either got like a zipper fly or a tie on them. And you have two of these and you put them in maybe 10 yards apart from each other because one you're sleeping in, and the other you're eating, and you don't put them side by side. You need that distance in brown bear country. So they get them set up. They get to bed. About 2 o'clock in the morning, that client from Pennsylvania, this bow hunter who's never seen a brown bear, is waking up the guide. He says, listen, bear's back. He's over at the food tent just tearing it apart. He goes, what do we do? The guy says, okay, listen, here's what I And these guys are both like in their tidy whiteies right? And this is kind of a funny thing. They're in the middle of the outback, and here you can just see these guys in your mind. Or maybe you don't want to see them in your mind. But he says, listen, I want you to go undo the fly of the tent. I want you to pull that fly back. And he says, I'm going to have my 338 wind mag. I'll be right behind you. And I'll probably have to fire a shot over the brown bear's head. But tomorrow, you'll know where to find this Boone and Crockett bear to hunt. Are you ready? So the client gets up. He's got the flashlight. He pulls the fly of the tent back, steps to the side a little bit, shines a flashlight you know, 10 yards away into the bear's face. 
bear lays his ears flat to his head. Full, did, you, did you ever have your, like your house cat do that before? Like when they lay their ears flat to their head, it's not a good thing. You have your wife do that? You know what I'm talking about. Lays ears flat to his head, full charge right now. And I've said before, they can outrun a quarter horse in a, in a short distance. Well, this guy drops the flashlight. This, this you know, client takes off running into the back of the tent in his underwear, leaves Lyle standing here in the pitch, pitch dark. Lyle fires. He, he, he raises the rifle up, can't see, fires the rifle from the hip. About three feet of flame shoots out the back of this 338 wind mag, hits the bear on the top of the head, blows about four pounds of brain out of the back of his head, pancakes the bear about three steps away from him. He takes the bolt, jacks another shell, pulls the trigger, click, click. Feels something hit his feet, finds the flashlight, shines it down at his feet. The floor plate, the receiver of his 338 wind mag had opened up and every shell had fallen onto the ground. He had one shot. Isn't that nuts? You know, there was a, a song when I was a kid. My mom was a choir director, you know, in the, in the church where I grew up. And it was, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I don't know if, Eric, you remember that song. A mighty fortress is our God. And there's a line in that song that says, and one little word shall fell him. Guys, if you don't know the word of God, you know, it's one thing to say we believe in God, but it's, it's another thing. If you really believe in God, then you want to know him. It's so important that we know his word. That is our, our two-edged sword you know, that we've got to have. It's the word of God. It's what's going to take the enemy down. And that's where we're headed in this now, okay? So if that 338 wind mag in the hands of someone who knows how to use it can take, you know, a 12, 1300-pound charging brown bear down, what do we do when we have an enemy who's much greater, and I hate to give him any credit, than a brown bear? What do we do when he comes after us? What do the attacks look like? And, and I said this, you know, last week, you know, the attacks are usually going to be coming in the form of, you know, can the, can the enemy mess with our body? We know he can. Can he mess with our thoughts? We know he can. So how do, we, how do we fight back against the enemy that wants to twist our thoughts to create unhealthy emotions that, left, if left untreated, will cause us to go do unhealthy actions? How do we declaw, right, the lies of the enemy? What do we do with that? So in cognitive therapy, you know, you've got uh, thoughts create emotions, emotions create actions. We talked about that. So let me set up a, a little example so you can kind of understand what that might look like. So let's say you've got a mom and a dad, and they, they haven't seen each other, you know, like for a month. I mean, they've been, they've been, they're home, but they're just basically sleeping in bed. They're exhausted. They have a new one-year-old little child, and, and their time's all being taken up between work and the kid and everything. And, you know, husbands and wives are created to have intimate time together, and they're just not having, a, you know, any, any time. So dad goes out and he rents, you know, some movie like The Notebook. You know, he's trying to score points here with his wife, and he maybe gets something to drink and makes a, some shrimp cocktail or whatever, and, you know, the, the mom's back. She's putting the little one-year-old to bed. And so mom comes out. They're on the couch. And you know, the child's finally asleep. And things are getting good, right? And he's like, you know, tonight's my night. And all of a sudden, here comes Junior walking out of the bedroom. You know, in that moment, what are you thinking? You're probably thinking like, you know, kid, you just ruined my night, right? And if you're thinking that, what's the emotion going to be coming out of that thought? Well, it's going to be frustration, anger, right? And what might the action be? You know, it could be give him a little swat on the butt, you know, yell at him, get back to bed, whatever. So you can see how thoughts create emotions, emotions create actions. But where I want to go with this is it's your belief system that shapes how you think. 
So if you have a healthy belief system, you will begin to learn how to untangle unhealthy thoughts, emotions, and actions. So let's just take that same story for a second. Here you got mom and dad, things are getting good. You know, Junior's back asleep, finally going to have some good time together. Here comes Junior walking down the hallway. But the only difference in that story being this time is this is the first time your child has ever walked. It's their first steps. Do you feel the difference? Some of you are going, no. <laughs> but you do. You feel the difference. I mean, this is what you've, you've weighed for. You've trained. You've prayed. All these things you believe is this child should be walking right about now. And you begin to get a piece that you know, the timing of him taking his first steps are healthy, what things need to be. And so the thoughts, the emotions, and the actions. You no, know, the thoughts might you know, be, this is great. We've been waiting for this. You know, the emotions change to you know, joy, exuberance. You know, the actions are come to mom, come to dad, get the camera. You know, we're celebrating. But what a big difference when the thought changed because your belief system was healthy. Um, my buddy used to make this, this tea. Uh, he called it man tea. You know, whenever we'd be on an adventure, he'd make it. I'd say, you know, hey, what's in that tea? It's really good stuff. He'd say, I can't tell you. I have to kill you. It was a joke. We called it man tea. But one of the ways you can remember this is T-E-A, T, thoughts, emotions, and actions. So we kind of went through last week a little bit about renewing our mind. You know, Romans 12, 2, where it says, you know, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it says you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, one of the questions we start with, you know, what do we do when things seem impossible? Well, we're coming back to, he has a perfect will. And when we can trust that, there is nothing impossible with God. But how do we get to this place where we can untangle, you know, these thoughts. So let's just go back to the man T, T-E-A, thoughts, emotions, and actions, which is psychology. So let's create a situation here. Let's say that your thought is, I must succeed. You know, we, we said in week one, a man's biggest question is, do I have what it takes? So in a man's mind, that means I have to be successful. I must succeed. So your thought in this situation is going to be, I must succeed. Well, if your thought is, I must succeed in order to be good enough, right? What kind of an emotion is that going to create? Fear, maybe you're not going to be good enough. Anxiety, what if I'm not? You know, worry, doubt, shame if I'm not good enough. And then what happens out of those kind of emotions? What kind of actions do those create? You might become a workaholic. Because if you must succeed, I have to succeed, then I'm going to have to do whatever it takes in order to be successful because I want to know I'm good enough. So you become a workaholic. You might become an alcoholic. You can't deal with the feeling of not being good enough. A, a drug addict, porn addict, whatever that thing is that you go to that's not healthy because that thought that you must succeed in order to be good enough wasn't healthy. It's based on a lie. Remember the big lie, my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth? Why would I go to someone else to get my good enough? That's why I'm believing I must succeed because I'm comparing myself to someone else. But here's the cool thing. We're going to move on now, and we're going to go what I said earlier. This is um, uh, Christian convergence therapy is what it is. We're going to take Scripture and move it into cognitive therapy and psychology now, and it's going to be my beliefs shape how I think, feel, and act. So, But we're going to do it this way. The theological side in my belief system, we're going to start my beliefs being that they're based on works-based theology. Now, if you don't know what I mean by works-based theology— in other words, I have to do good in order to be good. That's workspace. I have to do all these things in order to get my righteousness. I have to earn it, which we know is a lie, again, from the pit of hell. But if I come out of a workspace theology, and that's my belief, 
guess what? My value equals my performance in that kind of a belief system. What I do equals who I am. If that's how I'm believing, guess what happens to my thought? I still have to succeed to be good enough because it's up to me. My emotion stays the same. My action stays the same. Nothing changes. But we're still, you know, talking about, you know, God in this, but why didn't it change? Because we're believing a lie that my good enough comes from what I do rather than what God does. So let's take the same belief system now, but in rather than it being works-based theology, we're going to go to grace-based theology, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, what Christ did on the cross for our sins. In that theology, my value doesn't come from my performance anymore. My value comes because the God of the universe is in me. Remember how we talked about the three parts, body, soul, and spirit, and that God puts his promise, Holy Spirit, in my spirit the moment I truly believe? That's my one true identity. I've said all along, it's all about identity. And now my belief system is my identity is Christ is in me. That's where my righteousness comes from. That's where my good enough comes from. Well, if I'm believing that, guess what happens to the thought? Before it was, I have to succeed, right? I must succeed. Now I don't have to succeed to be good enough because I'm already righteous, No one can take that away from me. What others didn't give you, they can't take away. My good enough comes from the God of the universe, his truth that he is in me. And now that I'm believing that, let's look at what happens to the emotion. Before I had anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, right, all that stuff. Now my anxiety goes down and my peace, my joy, my self-control, again, fruit of the spirit, like we've talked about, those things all go up. Those emotions now become healthy. And out of healthy emotions, guess what happened to my actions? I no longer have to be a workaholic. I don't have to run to porn to get a quick fix or alcohol to bury the pain. Now my sin decreases because my actions get healthy. I have a healthy work ethic. I have healthy behaviors because I got my inner self straight that my identity comes from Christ being in me, not what I do. I hope you can see how powerful that is. And I want to wrap this up here in just a minute. And I want to give you one more way of declawing the lies of the enemy. That was kind of a, a way you could see it, but I want to give you some tools now. Just like, you know, loading, you know, 338 shells in that Magnum rifle. I want to give you the shells you're going to need now to go after the enemy. And here's a $110 counseling session right here. I hope you guys, man, write this down. You know, whatever you need to do when you're listening to this, pause it when you hear these and write them down. This is going to help you in ways you can't even begin to imagine. It's, it's what helped me through my own personal shipwreck. So to declaw the lies of the enemy, the, num- the number one thing we have to do, the first thing, is we have to identify the unhealthy emotion. Why do we start with the emotions? Well, remember, we have to go back and we think about if those emotions line up with things like the deeds of the flesh, we know they're not coming from God, they're coming from the enemy. But if the emotion lines up with the fruit of the Spirit, we know we're already believing what's true. So when that enemy is coming after you, the first thing, maybe you're just sitting there going, man, I feel so angry today. Write it down. You have to write down what are the emotions you're feeling. That's the first thing. Number two, identify the unhealthy thought creating the emotion. And we know it's unhealthy because we just looked at the emotion. If the emotion lines up with the deeds of the flesh, I know somewhere in that thought there's a lie twisted in with it. You know, it could be a should statement. Well, they should have known better than to do that. Well, if they weren't a believer in Jesus Christ... They, they did exactly what they should have been doing, giving what they were believing. You know, we get so worked up with people, but we don't want to get into their world 
and use empathy to find out why they acted a certain way. We just want to use, you know, fear and shame and condemnation, right? To try to get someone to. And whenever you use the thought, I got to get someone to do what I want them to do, we've gone down the wrong path. That's that's God's job. You know, Russian, or not Russian, uh, Romans 14.4 says, if there's corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle that without your help. So the first thing was look at the unhealthy emotion and write it down. The second thing is, Identify the unhealthy thought you're thinking. You'll find a lie twisted in with it. They're called cognitive distortions. And, you know, at some point we're going to put up something, you know, on the uh, unleashed.men website um, where you can see a list of these cognitive distortions so you can see which lies you're buying into. And I'll let you know when that's going to be. The number three thing we have to do is we have to identify the truth. Now, what does God say about this? You've looked at the emotion, the unhealthy one, you've written it down, you've identified and then written down the unhealthy uh, thought, but now you have to say, what does God say about this? And you have to write it down. You need to be able to see it because number four depends entirely on this. Number four is now you have to renew your mind with that truth. Remember we talked about Romans 12 too, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind? That's what you are doing here. This is how we take take care of the enemy and knock him down. We're getting rid of the lies he's getting you to buy into that you can't even see. He is so camouflaged and how he can do this stuff. But you have to renew your mind. And don't let it become the one, two, three step. You know, I look at the emotion, the thought, I wrote the truth down, but I didn't renew my mind. Because if you don't do number four and renew your mind, nothing changes. So guys, write those down. Let me give them to you real fast. Identify the unhealthy emotion, identify the unhealthy thought, identify the truth, and renew your mind. This is the bullet to take out the enemy. So when wrapping up today, I wanted to tell you quickly about a, a pastor who got a hold of me. It was on a really nasty winter day. It was freezing out, that bad snowstorm. And he said, uh, hey, I, I live about three hours away. Is there any way I might be able to meet you at, at uh, someplace near you to, to get something to eat? I just need to talk. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I could tell if it was a bad day, he's coming. Something was big. So we sit down, it was a cracker barrel, we sit down across from each other, and he starts telling me, he says, you know, Brent, I, I left ministry five years ago. I said, oh, I, I, I had no idea. I haven't kept up with you for a while. And he said, yeah, he said, I had an affair. I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. He said, you know, I, I, I had to leave ministry. He said, my wife and I were able to work through things and uh, stay married. I'm thankful for that. He said, but I'm, I'm feeling, feeling like, you know, maybe God wants me to go back into the ministry. He said, but you know, you know, the average when someone has an affair like that, you know, 10 or 15 years to be able to get back into ministry. And I said, you know, I, I understand I, there's a time we need to work on ourselves, get healthy, build trust. But frankly, I'm not going to put some kind of a time limit on how many years it needs to look like. I care more about, are you healthy? Are you being able to untangle the lies that got you into this? And I said, first of all, I don't care what your sin is. I, I don't mean that I don't care about you. I don't care what your sin is. Like I said earlier, sin is an illegitimate way of trying to get a legitimate need met. And that's what you were doing. Whatever the reason was, you were hurting and you thought it was the right thing to do in the moment because you were buying into lies. You were in a vulnerable place. Like we talked about last week, taking our spiritual temperature, you were in a fog. Because if you were on your A game, you never would have done that, right? And he said, yeah. I said, I'm so sorry you bought into those lies. I said, but let's, let's just kind of look at this for a second. I want you to take these four steps that I just gave you guys. I said, I want you to do this. And I wrote them down on a placemat. We flipped it over. I said, what are the unhealthy emotions you're experiencing right now? He said, well, that's easy. Shame and condemnation. I said, write them down. So he did. I said, let's do number two. Identify the unhealthy thought. What are you thinking 
that's causing you to feel that right now? He said, oh, it's what is everybody thinking about me that knew about my affair and knows that I want to go back into ministry? I said, write it down. So number three, I want you to identify the truth. He said, the truth is I had an affair. I said, that's not what I'm talking about. Remember how we talked about past and future thinking? He was totally living in the past, and that was holding, that shame was holding on to him. I said, what does God say in Psalm 103 about your sin? He's cast it what? He said, as far as the east is from the west. I said, why are you saying it like that? He is saying to you, what sin? If he's cast it as far as the east is from the west, it's gone, never to be brought back up again. You know, what does he say? You know, Psalm 139, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. What's he say in, in, in Romans 8? Was it, is it 8-1? No, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are a believer. If you're hearing the voice of condemnation, that's not coming from the one who made you. That's the voice of the enemy because look at the emotions. You feel ashamed. See, there's a big difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is what the enemy wants, and it causes you to go deeper into hiding. Conviction is what God wants because it unmasks the lies you've been buying into, and it leads you into the light. Think, think about a seed for a second. Maybe you're the person out there that feels like, you know, whatever your sin was, someone kicked a whole bunch of dirt over the top of you, and you feel like, you know, you've been abandoned. You're dying. You're in the dark, right? But here's the thing. That seed has to be in the darkness in order for it to take root. And those tears maybe that you've been crying, it's like water. God, it says in Revelation, God has bottled every single tear you cried, and he's kept a record of it on his scroll. But he's watering that seed. And as it breaks through the ground, it's breaking through because the light is drawing it to become healthy. And guess what? Because now you understand grace, you know how to untangle these lies, you really are dangerous for good. Like we've been saying, we are the resistance You've got to become dangerous for good. And now that you know the word of God, that is your two-edged sword. You've been through the trials, so now you can understand where someone else has come, come from, and you can give empathy toward them. You really are dangerous against the enemy. So in, in wrapping up, um, you know, I, I told you in the very first episode, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania and I, and I worked in the steel mill for a few years, you know, trying to earn my man card, trying to feel like I was good enough, right? But when I worked in the steel mill, there was a, a vat where you would put steel in. You would pour it in there. And they would take all these scrap metals, and the payloaders would come, and they would shove all the scrap metal into these vats, and they would heat it up to incredibly high temperatures. Because when you do that, when that molten metal melts, all the impurities rise to the surface And then they take something called a ladle and they're able to scrape that stuff off the top so that when that steel hardens, it will now um, not dry with cracks and impurities so they can go and make powerful things, you know, golf clubs, rifles, you know, nuclear submarines, whatever. It has to be mature and complete, not lacking in anything, just like James chapter 1 says. So what is it when you think about um, when you're cooking dinner tonight, let's say you're cooking fish. When you have that pan and you put that seasoning in there and, and, you, and the oil, what is it that transforms? Just like that steel was transformed, what transforms that piece of fish into something good for you to eat? Was it the pan? Was it the oil? Was it the seasoning? No, it's the fire. See, God is purifying you. He's exposing the lies of the enemy so that you can see how to fight back 
so that you can be dangerous for good, so that you are mature and complete. So my friend, no matter what you're going through as you're listening to this right now, there is nothing that is impossible like we talked about in that question. God loves to work through the impossible. He's going to do something great in your life. Believe it, because he wants you to be unleashed. Stay dangerous, my friend. We'll see you next time.